Well, I know we have a lot to get to, so we probably <laughs> better get started. More than we uh, can cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, we have just two weeks left, uh, Rhonda this week and uh, Tom next week. Um, so uh, this has been a wonderful series. I, I planned far too many topics, which is why it, it ran into this year. Um, but um, a couple more weeks of this. And um, I, I did get a listen to the conversation from last week, which I missed a part of. And uh, towards the midway point, someone asked, well, what do we think of wealth then? You know, what's this series? That was Margaret. <laughs> see but I was at, I, and, at the end, in two weeks, we have to make a decision. <laughs> we had got to make a decision. So we'll have a vote, you know, in a couple of weeks, what we think now. But um, hopefully this has been uh, informative uh, for, for us as we think about uh, wealth in the Christian tradition and poverty. But this week we're kind of going modern um, and, and asking some real uh, concrete questions about what's the role of money and happiness and the good life and how much is enough sort of thing. So, Rhonda. Thank you for. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is a huge. And I am not huge sure talk. we're going to bring yeah. any clarity to the situation at all. Um, I, I dove into this thinking, oh, this is cool and interesting, and then I, Stephen, got several anguished emails from me. Like, there's just too much. I can't cover it all. What do I do? <laughs> so I decided on an approach. I decided rather than trying to summarize the state of research on anything related to this. I would just pick some studies that I thought were interesting and might provoke some conversation. And I am not claiming these are the best studies out there, the most recent, the most important, or the consensus views. They were just the ones I found interesting. So just so you know, you're not getting like the whole course on, on this, but just the grades of the service. <laughs> Well, I just didn't want you to go out and say, okay, I now know everything about this, because you won't. <laughs> but you'll at least maybe have your interest peaked a little bit. And my apologies in advance. I know a lot of the previous sessions, which sadly I haven't been able to come to all of them, have covered a lot of the theological approach to these things. There's not a lot of theology today. I'm hoping it will inform some of the things that we have talked about theologically, and we'll try to make some connections there but yeah it's more like it's more like a class than <laughs> Sunday school but we'll, we'll work with that <laughs> so um, I would start out by saying unsurprisingly after diving into the research out there there's a ton of research on happiness and wealth the relationship between happiness and wealth and it's not just from one academic discipline psychologists have just you know investigated this sociologists investigated this um, Global Studies has investigated this. We People have looked at individual happiness. They've looked at societal happiness. So there's lots of different ways to think about this. And so, again, lots out there. <laughs> um, and of course, I mean, as we've been exploring in this series thus far, um, philosophers and theologians have been thinking about this even well, well before the age of sort of modern academic research. So there's that piece of it as well. A few things that I tried to kind of think about as or that the research suggested is that A, there's no one magic price tag for, you know, maximizing happiness. So nobody is probably surprised by that. Um, there are some factors that make a difference in um, how sort of the level of how, how wealth informs happiness. One being, you know, what you spend that wealth on. So it's, it's not just how much you have, but what you spend it on. 
Um, it matters what those around you have. So, you know, in some contexts, you know, a, an amount is enough to make you happy. In other contexts where people may have a lot more or a lot less, that impacts sort of that relationship as well. So my, I just put that as money, the relationship between money and happiness is both relative and absolute. Mm -hmm. So that it, the context matters, but there are some sort of values assigned as well. And of course it matters who you are, what your personality is, what, um, how old you are, what, you know, what point in the journey of life you're on. And it matters, um, you know, what you, again, who, who's around you and, that, and, and their values and the culture around you. And um, you, the larger culture, the country you're in, the political environment you're in, that makes a difference as well. So those are just some factors to keep in mind. And one of the big things that I ran across too as I was doing research is there's lots of ways to measure happiness. It's not just a, you can go out there and you know do a blood test and find out how happy somebody is. <laughs> there's, you know, there's lots of factors that play into that. And um, I listed a few of these and um, I was thinking one way we could think about sort of the theological implications is to say how, which of these measures of happiness maybe most closely rely, uh, align with the Christian traditions of happiness and you know what measures may make a difference to us as we're thinking on sort of a theological level rather than just a so anyways, well, let's talk through these and if you can maybe put a star by the ones you think most closely align with the Christian definition of happiness. So there's what's called experienced well-being. So that's where the researcher will come up and say, how happy are you? And they'll give you a scale. You can rate yourself, you know, one to five. And so that's just kind of an immediate, how are you feeling right now kind of measure. There's what's called evaluative well-being, and this is where researchers give people the chance to sort of think about their life, consider different factors in their life, and make a sort of a bigger picture judgment of, of their level of happiness. Um, the satisfaction with life scale, which answers, uh, this is a survey kind of thing, where you answer questions about various components of sort of happiness, you know, looking at your relationship status and your um, financial status and a lot of different things. And they, it's a fairly short survey, but they found it's a pretty robust survey so that when you, if you take this survey multiple times, you know, throughout your life, throughout your day, you generally fall in the same place. Um, so it's, it's, that's what when researchers talk about a robust survey, that's what they're talking about, that it holds true over a, a longer period of time. Um, anybody here heard of the happiness index or the World Happiness Report? Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of factors that they, they look at. That's more um, sort of after the fact of doing the research. Okay. They, they see what correlates, with, but they use a very simple, they, what's called the happiness ladder or the Cantrell ladder to assess populations. And the question they ask is, in, think of a ladder. The top of the ladder represents the best possible life for you, and the bottom of the ladder represents the worst possible life for you. Put yourself on a rung on that ladder. Oh. And, um, That's very subjective. 
<laughs> well, yes. Everything else. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, happiness is subjective. subjective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it depend on the day that day. Yeah, <laughs> but they're asking tens of thousands yeah. of people this yeah. question. So, right. so, so it's not like they're, you know, they just go to, you know, Switzerland and ask one person. They ask, you know, lots and lots <laughs> yeah, of people. We need one representative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, Jeff, how happy are you? <laughs> 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 Scale one to ten. <laughs> well, if I were and in Switzerland, I'd be really happy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, but then that's where they, they ask this simple question to lots and lots of people, and then they correlate it okay. with those socio sociological other kinds of factors mm -hmm. in that culture to draw some conclusions about what factors make people rate themselves higher mm -hmm. on that ladder, okay. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. so, so they're not necessarily researching, it's an after the fact okay. sort of thing, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, the World Happiness Report, I mean countries that are very poor, countries that are in conflict, so so war and conflict, oh, yeah, that's they, they those tend to be, I mean, it's unsurprising, like the very sort of most beset by poverty and conflict <laughs> countries in Africa, like Sudan, <laughs> comes down way down at the bottom of the list. Okay, what's it taking war? And then, and it tends to be, you know, comfortable Western nations that come out at the top of the scale. Not always the U.S., but, but a lot of the, you know, uh, Scandinavian, European okay. countries come out of the time. So, yes, as much as we'd like to think maybe people are going to be happy in more difficult situations, it does not necessarily play out okay. in, in this particular study. Okay, thank you. Um, and then the last definition, which if I was here for that very first um, discussion that Stephen left, that um, you, they talked about Aristotle's definition of happiness, mm -hmm. and and the UN uses a definition of human flourishing that is related to that Aristotle's um, definition, which is, uh, I'll just quote from them, human flourishing is both the optimal continuing development of human beings' potentials and living well as a human being, which means being engaged in relationships and activities that are meaningful, aligned with both their own values and humanistic values in a way that is satisfying to them. Flourishing is conditional on the contribution of individuals and requires an enabling environment. And Bangladesh may not have that enabling environment. Right, and so places where people don't have access to education or, or you know, even basic needs, um, it's hard for people to flourish if they don't have right. some of those basic things that... Mm -hmm. That are, you know, and and I think the UN does try to not just represent a Western point of view. They try to they've tried to come up with a definition that is that applies across cultures. So, anyways, just looking at those, and again, there's even more more than this out there, but these are a few of them. Are there any that you think particularly align with a more Christian theological um, conception of happiness? So you think there's maybe a spiritual component missing from any of these definitions of happiness? So I think the one that comes closest to maybe hitting that at all would be the yeah. second one, the reflecting on your over your whole life rather than a specific snapshot in time, because mm -hmm. that would maybe allow you to personally put that in there, but it doesn't explicitly ask that. I, I agree with Tina on that. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. also based on needs and wants, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and where you're going to go with that. And um, I happen to be reading Benedict. So um, <laughs> it, uh, 
I, I have a quote from Benedict if you'd like to hear it. Sure. Okay. Please, sure. Yeah, this is a good plug for our next adult form series, <laughs> which is on Benedictine spirituality. Ooh, very nice. So we're going to have that is during Lent. It's five oh, so weeks. Actually, this so, is in yeah. a section on humility. Okay. okay. Humility is really the goal of the Christian life: is to know ourselves truly mm-hmm. and to trust God's love for us truly. Mm-hmm. And this is what uh, he says. Benedict tells us that it is bad for the soul to have to have more than the necessary, that it gluts us, that it protects us in plexiglass from the normal, the natural. Benedict says that the goal of life is not to amass things, but to get the most out of whatever little we have. Benedict tells us to quit climbing. If we can learn to love life where we are, in what we have, then we will have room in our souls for what life alone does not have to offer, which is relationship with God. When we put ourselves in the center, we're, we're always going to be unhappy. Yes. And then he quotes a talent. Free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestations. Mm. So how often we say, I'd be happy if, when, or if, if, it's a lie. You're never going to be happy until you're happy inside. I think I think that kind of also aligns with something that's later on. Sorry if I'm skipping ahead. Don't know that. <laughs> the Easterland paradox mm-hmm. with the fact that, like, it's not a, uh, that there's a certain amount of wealth that you need, like, that, that fulfills your basic needs mm-hmm. and is able to keep you comfortable. With uh, that action, that increases your ha- like. If you notice, the increase in happiness is um, starts going very high, as, like with wealth, and then at a certain point it then plateaus. And I think that kind of follows along with that, where it's like wealth doesn't make happiness, but you need at least some of it to actually, you know, sustain yourself alive. And unfortunately, a lot of people are here. <laughs> and and to go along with what Patrick was saying, I thought that the very first one. Your happiness depends on, or it matters on what you spend your money on. Mm-hmm. And, and I, when you first pointed that out, I was not thinking materialistic things, but more of what we talked about maybe three sessions ago. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you hit, you hit whatever is comfortable for, and I don't mean superfluous comfort, mm-hmm. but, but your needs. Uh, sort of that environment for an enabling environment so that you can provide for that. And then you're able to say, okay, now, where can I put this other money? And that, to me, has always provided a sense of happiness. Thank you. I've always thought of money as a tool, and I use Mm -hmm. it to buy things for myself and buy things for others. Mm -hmm. And, And this is actually interesting. We had this conversation last night because... We had dinner at Tippecanoe Place, and, um, and and I said, "Can you believe this is someone's home?" And like, and I went upstairs, and I hadn't been there. We hadn't been there since Mother's Day it was the last time we were there, and, and I was just like, "This was someone's home." And and then nowadays, we have we have billionaires with way more than this, and uh, and so we just had that conversation of uh, is like it's like. You know, so when you have a house and then you get a bigger house, the hallways are a little bit bigger, the bedrooms are a little bit bigger, everything's a little bit bigger, and then at some point there's diminishing returns. Like you, you, 
then it becomes ostentatious. And I was just like, this was someone's home. And like, I can't believe how, I mean, you could get lost here. You know, but ostentate, well, that, that also becomes relative. You yeah. know, to them, it's normal. To us, right. it's right. ostentatious. Right, well, yeah. and the same Spark thing. exceeds the need. And also, if you are unaware of more, and you're used to it, you might be happy with what you have and and not know that there's more. I remember mm -hmm. becoming unhappy with my Christmas gifts one year because I went to a friend's house mm. and, <laughs> and I better. realized how mm. much he got. Mm. And all of a sudden I was unhappy with, and I was happy before I saw everything he got. Yeah. It was just like, and you know, I'm gonna yep, I'm yep. gonna return yep. to that with a study um, that uh, that kind of talks about that a little bit. So, yeah, that's a good point. But um, before we move on to the different studies, um, I just wanted to maybe talk a little bit. There are some other definitions of happiness that come from sort of a more ancient. Uh, information, um, Aristotle being one who certainly informed the early Christian theologians. And he, I think, broke happiness down in a different kind of way and sort of, again, put it on a ladder. So the four levels of happiness would be the first level is from material objects, the big houses, the, you know, all the luxuries that, that money can buy. Um, the next level would be what he called ego gratification, so that <laughs> comparison. <laughs> you know, I'm better than you are, so I'm happier because I can see those around me who don't have as much as I do. Um, or you may be better at, you know, whatever you do, but being better grants you a certain kind of happiness. The next level is the happiness um, from doing good for others and working, making the world a better place. And then his final level was sort of transcendence. Uh, I think sort of ultimate sort of spiritual happiness. So he, he broke it down and I think that's kind of a helpful way to think about happiness too, is that there's sort of different levels of happiness that we experience and some are more important than others. And then of course, um, I had, the Beatitudes are often translated with happy are those rather than blessed are those, that they use that word happiness, which gives us another kind of definition of happiness that seems maybe completely unrelated <laughs> to those other definitions that are currently being used by researchers um, to define happiness and probably much closer to what what you just described for us in Benedictine spirituality. But um, I, hmm. none of the Beatitudes to me speak to the money or wealth. It's mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, that's just a, another thing to sort of keep in that tank. All right, so I picked, um, as I told Stephen, I was completely overwhelmed. So I turned to AI <laughs> to help me organize my thoughts. Yeah. Anybody here else like ChatGPT? For organizing things, I, it's pretty It's useful. pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, we can have a whole other conversation. As a librarian, I, I have some thoughts about that. Adult form series after Benedictine spirituality. Wow, wow this sure. is. <laughs> I feel. Like. Yes. Hosted by Alexa and Siri. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is a wonderful tool for helping you sort of not get lost in the weeds on certain questions because I was getting very lost in the weeds. I was following research 
studies <laughs> down a rabbit hole. And it's like, no, I need to have the big picture. So that's what I asked ChatGP2 for. So, and they, it did come up with some questions that I thought were germane and, I, and kind of interesting. And um, the first one being, what is the relationship between money and happiness according to academic research? And you brought up the Easterlin paradox, and I did give you a very generalized graph of that, um, which, as you described, you know, happiness increases with income up to a certain level, and then it levels out. This is kind of foundational happiness research, which started in the 1970s, and this was one of sort of the first major findings. And a lot of subsequent research drew on that um, and sort of finessed it. Um, interestingly, and so, and I think it, it makes a certain intuitive sense that, you know, money is going to make you happy as it meets some of those needs that you just have to have in order to flourish, but at some point more money isn't going to make you any happier because it's diminishing returns, right? Because you can only buy, you know, so many giant rooms in a, your house. and. Exactly. Mm. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not a good person to talk to about that. But, <laughs> but yes, absolutely. You know, it, you're, a, new, a new dress is only going to make you, you know, proportionally happier. Maybe if you have two dresses, a third dress is going to make you really happy. If you have 30 of them like I do, it may not have as big an effect. However, there has been um, a 2021 study that um, critiqued the tools that is often used to measure the Easterlin paradox. And they usually use what's called a Likert scale. That's, you know, on a, brain, a scale of one to five, you know, how happy are you? And their critique was is that people were at a five, and so they just didn't have anywhere higher to go with their rankings of their happiness. And so they devised some new tools which allowed you to go you know, higher on a scale. And that more recent research says that there's, there's no, oh well, to the point they measured it, but no upper limit to how much additional. Um, so that's one study out of many. Yes. No upper limit to, sorry, can you? No. I, I was going to say, just the no upper limit to the amount of wealth, I think, was where Yeah, so you, you, more and more money will continue to make you more and more happy. I, I <laughs> the dollar signs they put there, and, I mean, have they, do they adjust these numbers for inflation no. kind of thing? No, and because that's... Because I'm like, $75,000 mm -hmm. doesn't buy what it used to. Exactly. Looking at 2021 versus the mm -hmm. 1970s, mm -hmm. that's a huge... Right, number. and a lot of these are not inflation adjusted, which is why, again, a single price tag isn't going to work, yeah, but yeah. yeah, go on. Uh, did you have no, something no, you wanted to do? Um, so um, s some of the more recent studies have put that sort of inflection point on the Easterlin graph at somewhere between 65K to 125K. Is that, you know, that's where the diminishing returns really kick in. Um, but then there was that other study that said, oh, you know, more and more money is going to just make you more and more happy. And again, I, you know, the measure that they used is going to impact to what you find is on that information. But that's just something mm -hmm. to think about. And that, and again, if we want to sort of tie it to a theological perspective, I, people do continue to pursue higher and higher levels of income. So it must be giving them some kind of satisfaction mm -hmm. because otherwise we wouldn't have these multi-billionaires. Go along with what Daniel was saying about mm -hmm. how he was content 
with what he got for Christmas. He was probably excited mm -hmm. until he saw the comparative. Yeah. Mother and Daddy always told us we were not poor because that's what the kids were saying. Mother said we're broke. She said, poor is spiritual. Broke is a situation of pocketbook. Mm -hmm. and, and, like and, and, then, and then I got, as I got older and, and was living paycheck to paycheck, when Rick was in graduate school, I realized that my favorite supper was one that Mother prepared when we were out of money, and that was waffles and pecans for supper, not for breakfast. <laughs> and oh, and, and there were, may have been a strip or two of bacon crumbled in the batter. That, that was my favorite. <laughs> and it dawned on me, this is how she spread it all out. So happiness was there, and I didn't realize that maybe being broke gave me that opportunity. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I can look back at that. So the two-week camping trip we would take to national parks was great, but that was the only way we were going on vacation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Has lots of great memories that I look back now and go, mm -hmm. oh yeah, my parents had no money when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, so that's yeah. so exciting that, yeah. I mean, that you had those yeah. memories. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But also, youth is important then. Like when we were first married and when we would drive back east to see family, we would sleep in the car because we didn't have money for a hotel. And when you were, um, you know, 30, that was fun. When you're, <laughs> yeah, wait till you're 55, it's not so much fun. And, um, uh, and what, I, um, what I used to say, and what I told my son is, um, we're not poor, we just don't have money. And that way I thought I, I made it more of a, a state of mind thing, you know, mm -hmm. no, we don't have it. Uh, so that if you want, and what, um, what he did when he was a teenager was um, we, had a, um, uh, we had a big backyard and um, my, uh, my husband had a grill and he knew how to grill, my husband, you know, son knew how to grill. And um, what they had done a couple of times was other, pe other kids, pulled together their money, they went to the grocery store, they, you know, they, they bought something to put on the grill and, you know, the other food to eat, they bought groceries. They didn't go out to eat. Then they came back to our house and my son and his friends used the grill to cook everything and they had a delightful, yeah. yeah, and it was, and all it cost was grocery money. But, um, so, um, you know, you you can you can do that, but you also have um, uh, you know I wouldn't advise that for always. And and like I said, and when you get older and when your health isn't so good, you cannot do that. So you want to be able to have something so that when you get older, you can you know draw on that money. And um, also. Um, this doesn't happen to me to a great extent, but I've seen it. I've seen it with other people. When they get a raise at work, they actually bring home. They're in a different tax bracket, so they bring home less money. And um, so, uh, um, you know that that can happen too. And then also, the more you have, also more responsibilities come with that. And then also, other people are going to come to you you know, or other family members and, you know, I mean, just think, if you ever get any extra money, whom do you tell about that? 
because you don't want everybody to know because all of a sudden everybody's mother <laughs> needs an operation. <laughs> yeah, and I think these examples do point to maybe just a fundamental disconnect between societal measures of happiness and sort of the more spiritual uh, you know, measures of happiness that we've talked about um, in, in previous uh, discussions here about um, wealth and what it means. So it may be completely moot from a spiritual point of view what, you know, what wealth does for happiness. That may not, our, the worldly definition of happiness may not be what we are aiming for or care about anyway, but um, Moving on to the next study, though, I think there's some interesting things to think about as far as, again, sort of the equitable distribution of wealth and how that impacts overall happiness. And there was a really, I found it fascinating study. They found somebody who had $2 million they wanted to give away, and they gave, um, I think it was, what was the amount, $10,000 to 200 people in all walks of life around the world and various socioeconomic brackets, various places. And um, unsurprisingly, uh, you know, for people who are living in really poor situations in places like Bangladesh or, or in Africa, $10,000 was a huge, you know, jump in their level of happiness. Um, they, and they found sort of measurable differences for people who had incomes up to $125,000. Getting that $10,000 was a real boost. Past that, it didn't really increase people's happiness that much. You know, as if they already had a lot, another $10,000 wasn't that big a deal. But the sort of fascinating conclusion, or I don't know, a, a proposal for future research is that according to their measures, sort of net happiness in the world was increased by this distribution of wealth from this wealthy individual because the two million didn't mean that much to them. They were, you know, in that category <laughs> stratum that two million dollars wasn't. And so their, their happiness was not decreased at all. But there was this sort of happiness increase for those that were really at a lower level. And so their thesis is, okay, well, if we could just get everybody sort of on more or less the same field, we would increase net happiness in the world. And that's just one kind of silly example of this, but there's been lots of other studies that have shown that in societies and countries where there's not a huge wealth gap between the upper and the lower levels, that sort of net happiness is at a higher level. Interesting. Hmm. So that, to me that may help us think, I mean, maybe not so much on the individual level, but maybe even on the local community level or the national level, do we want to advocate for policies that create sort of a more level? Again, focusing on happiness, not on justice, not on ethics, that redistribution of wealth or, or focus or trying to give a level playing field may be a worthwhile community societal goal to just increase happiness. And we could probably increase justice and ethics a lot <laughs> by doing that. Um, the, the other um, factor that I mentioned at first, and this is gonna steer it away from more from societal happiness again to individual happiness, but um, looking, there was a study, a fairly recent one, um, 2018, that looked at what we spend money on and how that impacts our levels of happiness. 
and um, the this study I thought posed an interesting question. Um, it says, if money can be used to purchase more frequent or more intense positive experience, what is the price tag? And perhaps more importantly, what is the shopping list? So they came up with this shopping list of ways that we could spend that money. Yeah, we're on page three here. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, the ones that they came up with that seemed to have the biggest impact statistically, so that if you know you had Again, we're talking about excess wealth, people who could pay their right. rent and, yeah. and so forth. But they suggested buying experiences, not things, so that, you know, the bigger house nor clothes were not, did not increase your happiness as much as, you know, a vacation or, you know, going out to eat, something like that. They recommended trading money for time. They meant that if you could hire somebody to clean your house so oh, okay. you didn't have to, <laughs> if you could, you know, go out to a restaurant rather than having, to, which, you know, and again, um, I think a lot of us who are comfortable feel like we're pressed for time, that, that we're poor time-wise and, and wealthy money-wise. And so they said that does increase your happiness to trade um, money for time. They said not to overlook the ordinary, that the waffles with bacon and you know pecans would can make you happy and it doesn't have to be something exotic or something novel that that sometimes just spending on sort of those comfort things are is a good way to spend your money um spend to in, express yourself so giving sort of an opportunity to you know engage in your passions that the things that really you know grab you and want you to do it and then buying for others was was the last thing now again thinking theologically I'm not sure how many of these if any I mean I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that do those seem like spiritually good practices or do any of them seem like spiritually good practices or are they all very selfish well, certainly the last one can, can easily be translated into the buying for others yeah. whether that's I mean, even if you're, you know, if, you, if you're thinking you have to buy stuff rather than make a donation, but the, you know, mm -hmm. you're, the, the in gatherings for St. Margaret's House, mm -hmm. the, the need for socks and hats and gloves for the constant stream through the office and things mm -hmm. like that. Yep. I, I think it comes closer to. I mean, to, to, if you look at the list of the of the beatitudes, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a big argument for nuance. Yeah. <laughs> that, that the things that that seem to the world to bring happiness often really don't bring happiness and uh, in fact it's weird stuff that brings happiness sometimes suffering brings happiness sometimes mournfulness brings happiness mm -hmm. and and so it is saying in a way it seems a bit criminal to try to reduce the sermon on the mount to a slogan but <laughs> it's, it's sort of saying um, jesus is sort of saying um, you have to look a lot deeper than the surface and what the world says is happiness to really understand what happiness is. And this, this at least is encouraging you to do that by things like, yeah, it's often really ordinary stuff. It's not the latest, coolest, uh, foodiest thing in the world mm -hmm. that might bring you happiness right now. It might be something very, very, very simple indeed and something that doesn't have cultural um, um, uh, cachet to it. Um, that's at least inviting you to reflect on your life and, and mm -hmm. connection to your history, mm -hmm. your past. Mm -hmm. yes. 
it integrates your life. And it doesn't cost anything. And just looking down this list, and knowing, knowing sort of that just if we're looking at our own community, that any time in the last 15 years that we've had needs specifically within the, the parish community, um, that if Brian mentions it during a sermon, by the end of church, there's enough to deal with that need and usually to excess. Mm -hmm. I mean, that speaks really well. Um, so I also know, you know, like when back when we were directing camp, for the cathedral community, while we don't per se have a line item for that, there were several people who had, the, there was the open, if you have campers that are coming, especially from, from the cathedral and they need money, talk to me before you say, you know. Yeah, and I think uh, germane scripture is too, you know, Jesus just said, ask and you'll receive. And and yeah. we've all, I think, found that to be true. It, it, you know, not necessarily asking for ourselves, but asking I, when we worked with the refugee families, I would say, you know, we need furniture and furniture would magically appear and or we would need, you know, something for them and, and it would happen. And that was so much fun. And I know, I'd love to do that again. Thaddeus is a gift of the diocese because you're going back to what Pat was saying about those, you know, we, we weren't stupid. We had health insurance, we thought. Uh, we it covered maternity we thought <laughs> and discovered that we had spent all of that with one ultrasound yeah. and Bishop Gray put out a <laughs> put out a plea and we so, were in grad school it, it, and it, it, the same you know, thing happened to us yeah so um so anyways uh, so again thinking about the that relationship between happiness and and wealth does what you do with that wealth it makes a difference yeah. too and and in and, and your level of happiness again not oh go ahead so just to throw to that what's interesting is i so i after we had this conversation last night and then i was i was just poking around the internet i found a study where they gave like twenty five hundred dollars to people and then three years later checked on them and their plan was to see hey what did they do with it and mm -hmm. one of the questions and it wasn't the focus was was um are are you happier now than then and that was higher on the ones that spent it on someone else or the ones that um in uh i think they, they had random samples like um someone started a business with 2500 dollars, or someone's like hey, hey i paid off a loan that was mm -hmm. someone i borrowed money from someone else and i was never going to pay it back because i was taking care of everything and they paid a loan off and they just said yeah. it felt so free and and so it was interesting that all the happiness was tied to how they spent, how they spent the it. 25. Mm -hmm. so. Oh, talking about the stimulus. Yeah, I think this was like yeah. 2015. Yeah. Well, the final study that kind of intrigued me, um, and this one does tie in a little more directly with with faith and religion. Um, this one looked particularly at um, financial stress, so people who were dealing with um, you know different financial stressors in their lives and they found and they um, these were based on interviews with people and then they pulled out the um, sort of common themes that they found when people were discussing how their religious beliefs and, and um, being part of religious communities either caused more financial stress <laughs> or, or, or alleviated some of the financial stress. And the factors that um, they, they pulled out, ones that exacerbated financial stress, were religion increased financial obligations. So that in a lot of religious, it, the expectation is that you will support your 
your faith body financially. Um, religion required time sacrifice, which they kind of implied took away from opportunities to maybe make money. So, you know, you, you show up at, you know, your religious services that may impact your ability to... Religious values clashed with work so that they were in a work situation where they weren't able to sort of live out their religious values. Um, and religious values clashed with materialism, <laughs> which I think we're seeing here very vividly. <laughs> um, but ways that um, religion alleviated financial stress was um, reduced materialism, so that wasn't as important to those people. Religious giving brought satisfaction, and I think we touched on that as well. Religion improved perspectives on work, and religion fostered a positive outlook on financial struggles, which I think you're your mother, uh, <laughs> Celeste, it beautifully illustrated yeah, that, you know, it, it, it's poverty is different than being broke. Um, so, mm -hmm. so I was just curious, did those um, touch any chords um, with any of you? Does that seem like a truth? There's some truth in all of that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, thinking about uh, Benedictine spirituality, so many... Um, folks who have found themselves in poverty, whether chosen or not chosen, people have found happiness uh, mm -hmm. in those situations. And so I think that there's something really uh, valuable to learn from the fact that happiness is, it's not just an external reality around us, but it, it in the internal uh, nature of our, of our souls and our spirits uh, does matter. That being said, I think you know, when we, especially with the comparison, I think this has really been interesting for me, thinking about how I can find myself in a happy situation with a little or be, finding great happiness in a little. But then you look at wealth and equity. <laughs> and you think, there is this amount of money in our communities. This is where it is. And then I'm feeling unhappy, right? <laughs> because this isn't right. And I'm also starting to think, well, I don't have so much. And I'm feeling happy, but also, is that okay? It, can that be used to justify my lack? So it, it, there's, for me, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think we, I wanna be happy in whatever situation I'm in. I wanna have tools to be happy, whether I'm in a good financial position or a position where I don't have as much. Um, but religion is clearly a huge part for uh, you know, happiness and, and the lives of many wherever they find themselves. So, I think in particular the 2D uh, improved perspectives. If your perspectives are improved, you'll be happier. Just you know, when, and what I was saying before was no, nothing to do with ethics. It was just if you're happy, you'll if you're happy in a situation, you'll stay there. If you're not so happy, you'll be more inclined to leave, which was my own point. Um, but so, but if this, if our perspectives are improved, then that will bring happiness. Is that? There's a huge well, push towards minimalism these I, days. Which you know, people, mm -hmm. yeah. it, it does not appeal to me at all. <laughs> I, I, Marie kind of, I mean, this is yeah, totally off the subject, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, she's yeah, like, oh, right. get rid of everything. And it's like, all my stuff brings me joy. I, I mean, I mm -hmm. love the physical, tactile, beautiful, mm -hmm. and 
Well, don't go get, get, don't get rid of it. If it brings you joy, she says, don't yeah. get rid of it. Well, yeah. But there's a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I, but I, there was I, so much that broke uh, my mind. I wanted to hear from <laughs> Sheila. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what we're talking about. But And I think like there is a spirituality behind it, too, of like keep what brings you joy and like having to be very intentional about your life and like, I don't know if that's what we're talking about with wealth yeah, um, yeah. Like, and, and stuff that we need. But I think like being really aware of and intentional about what brings you joy and what brings you well-being. Yeah, I do like myself, but anyways, I yeah. wanted to spend <laughs> the last <laughs> couple minutes here. I didn't expect uh, or suspect that you're able to discern what brings you joy and what is joy. Well, maybe. I'm Maybe moved on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Two minutes here before we, we break up. Um, thinking about the bigger question, I think we've looked at that. Is happiness a goal? Is that important? Is it something that we need to, I mean, think about more? Um, and, and is, and, or do we really need to focus on more of the spirit? So the spiritual virtues <laughs> and happiness isn't one of them. Uh, okay. It should be the goal. It can be a byproduct of if you're doing the right thing. It's a byproduct. Yeah, if you're doing the right thing. You don't think the pinnacle of the Christian life is happiness? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, you yeah. Have no, it's joy, a, it's which is okay. very different from happiness. Yeah. Uh, happiness is a fleeting yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, sure. Joy sure. is something else. Okay. The pressing yeah. question, of yeah. course, is I, on the one hand, I agree entirely that yeah. happiness. Is not it's not presented in the gospel in the Bible anywhere as the goal of living a godly life. But the question of the relationship to wealth, what what we do as a community about wealth, mm -hmm. and about extremes of wealth, and about inequalities of wealth, mm -hmm. um, I is it, trying to figure out how these things map onto each other. Mm. Because we can say there's there's a danger in saying. Well, wealth doesn't matter to happiness, and in some ways, I agree right. with that entirely. Mm -hmm. And then that that could lead to saying, well, it doesn't matter. Some people are going to be really, really rich, and some people are going to be really, really poor. Happiness doesn't relate um, to that um, uh, because the spiritual values that we treat, that we teach, um, apply to anyone, no matter what their position in life. But that, I think, is a recipe for really bad things. I don't know how <laughs> yeah. it, it, right. I, yeah. I guess I said last time, it removes the prophetic vision of the gospel mm. um, and, and, and makes us all just have to embrace the status quo. Yeah. And I don't think we can do that. But, uh, and, and, I, and I wonder if here the best definition is, is the UN one. And one of the things it emphasizes is relationships. Mm. And one of the things that's so damaged by extremes of wealth is relationships. Mm. Right. Because how, how, how is it possible for right. the ultra-rich and the ultra-poor to have any kind of relationship when that glaring mm -hmm. inequality is there? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think if, if any place where the 
gospel can speak, it can speak about relationships mm -hmm. and the way in which extremes of wealth destroy relationships. Mm -hmm. And Tom, if both people were able to shuck all of the trappings of their income, it would be amazing as to what kind of real relationship they could have because then the, the people, the, the upper echelons wouldn't be looking down and the poor would be running away because they feel belittled. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that reminds me of a story from the Desert Times in one, mm -hmm. two sentences, I think. Um, one of the Abbas, uh, an expert in Greek and Latin and all the classical languages, was talking to a poor farmer. And somebody saw that and, and was clearly respecting him and all that. And somebody saw that and said, well, why are you doing that? And his response was, I don't know anything about that person's world. And he, that person's teaching me. Very nice. So, mm -hmm. Did you want to be our final comment here, yep. Sheila? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that just reminded me of um, a story that, so when I was being trained for my current job working with undergraduates, um, the, there's students from all different backgrounds in the program. And one student, two of the students in the program, one was um, like from an underprivileged school in New Orleans, and the other's father owned a sports team, and they were roommates. Oh, but, but and so they came from vastly different worlds, but they became best friends. And hmm. so like that reminds me of the kinds of connections that you can make because you know when you're in a dorm room together. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's it's, it's enforced funny. austerity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, thank everyone. You, I, I, I really so much. Enjoyed.